We are traveling through Exodus. Um, and if you missed, please catch up online because we are one of kind of those critical crossroads of the Old Testament here with how God is showing himself and specifically a very important passage showing himself in the 10 plagues. Now, last week we looked at plagues two, three, and four, and this week we will look at five and six. So last week was 32 verses. You know, I'm still catching my breath from reading that last week, but this week is 12 verses. Uh, that doesn't mean we're going any shorter. So uh, just for, no, I'm just joking. But um, the, the deal is that we are looking at scripture here. So this is the God and authority for our life, right? If we believe that, that these, this is God's word, then this is God's word, right? This is he, what he has intentionally given to us. Each word when, that is not arbitrary, it has meaning and purpose and is, and is specific for us. And so that's why we preach through books of the Bible here. And we try to go verse by verse, making sure that we're careful to, to pay attention to what God said and why he put it there where he put it there. Um, so with the, the book of Exodus here, spe specifically with the plagues, we're kind of doing a little hybrid. We are going verse by verse, but we're sort of taking like a 35,000 foot view and looking at the major themes that are kind of, you know, running throughout the 10 plagues, you know, and, and, and that common thread that continues of why is God using 10 plagues and what does this look like and, and all these sorts of things. And so the dominant themes that are running through this, through the plagues are the lordship uh, of God and his sovereignty. Now, over and over in Exodus, God is saying, look at me. I want to show you who I am. This is, I am God and there is no other like me. And so in Exodus, this is all about God making himself known. So remember Pharaoh who was approached by Moses and Moses said, Pharaoh, let my people go. You've enslaved them for hundreds of years. No more. Let them go so that they may go serve and worship God. And Pharaoh said, I don't know your God. Why would I do this? You know, why would I? Um, why would I want this to happen? This is God. I, I don't know what you're talking about. And then a few plagues later, the magicians say, "Pharaoh, wake up!" And they say, and I quote, "This must be the finger of God." You know, this it can only be the work of God. Magicians can't match this kind of of, of power and this kind of authority. And then after the fourth plague. Um, Pharaoh goes to Moses and says, just please ask your God, take these flies from us. We, we, can't, we, we can't accomplish this. We, we are absolutely swamped by the power of God and we need him to do this work because we cannot achieve it. Everything we're doing, there's not a fly paper in the world to handle what you've thrown at us, God, right? Um, but the issue is now they know him they know that God exists. They're, they're acknowledging that in their words, but they don't repent or surrender. This is the issue at hand now. Now, most people, we recognize God, but we, we have a struggle and a difficult time of repenting and surrendering to God. Many claim to follow him, but they, they follow him like they would follow somebody on Instagram. You know, scrolling through, it's like, Oh, there's God. I recognize that. That's cool. I like that part of God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like that. Or, or they, you know, uh, yeah, I just got a glimpse of him there. It's not really cool. I don't really want to consider that part and how that, you know, applies to my life. So I'm just going to keep going. You know, we look at God and we follow him like that. I mean, the issue with that is that that has no impact or input in our life. And so therefore it leads to no transformation 
and no repentance in our life. Right? This is the, for, for us as, as people sitting in here looking at this text. If, if you are following God in that way, then look at Pharaoh. I mean, this is what Pharaoh is doing. And this is how he is following God. This is how the Egyptians are looking at God. Yeah, yeah, you exist. I recognize that. But I'm not going to give you any authority or lordship over my life, right? And so God is, 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 is you know, his lordship is dominant. He is sovereign. He is in control of the patterns of the plagues, the number of the plagues, the length of the plagues. He's in total control of every detail. God has no limits, and God is saying, it's just me. It's just God, which is our bottom line for the day. Now, a little bit of a double meaning for our bottom line. Yeah, it's just God. There's no false gods that stand up to him. He alone is the true God of the world, of the universe. But the other side of this is he is a just God. He treats sin with justice. He does things. He is perfectly just and so we'll begin to see that unfold in the, in the plague number six today as we kind of walk through this text. So let's start there. Let's go to Exodus 9. We'll start in verse 1, and we'll read what Scripture says, what God has put here for us to look at today. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me, that they may worship me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time. He said a time, saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. And all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, like sent someone, Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Now notice when Moses begins this passage here, he starts off there in, in, in the verse and he says, thus says the Lord. Now, prophets did this very, you know, this was a very, you know, specific thing that they did. They, they're saying here, clearly expressing that the thing that they are about to state is not their opinions or their views or whatever you want to say, that this is the very words of God. It's God's word, so it's not up for debate. So over the past few weeks in our student ministry on Wednesday nights, we've been gathering and we're doing a series called You Asked For It. And so what we have done is we've given the students a chance a month ago, submit questions. You know, what questions do you want? Write them. What do you want to know about God? Anything, it can be anything. And, and we'll, we'll answer those questions. So, you know, it's questions about, well, how do I live for God? Or what's God like in this area of life? Or, you know, in this way? Or, or how do I talk to, uh, you, know, a, you know, a cultural issue? How do I stand up for my faith with this issue at school? Or whatever it may be. So lots of great questions. But what we've done is, uh, I didn't, uh, I've answered them, but I've not answered them the way that they would want me to, I think. Uh, we came in here, 
last Wednesday night, and I said, well, here are the questions. Now, get in your small group, and you answer them. You ask them, you answer them. But the issue is, I don't care about your opinion. I don't want to hear what your you know, thought on the issue is. I want to know what the Bible says. So what does God say about this? How are you supposed to navigate this question, answer this question based upon what the Lord says? Because he does say, because scripture does say, thus says the Lord. So he has some very specific things to say about our life in this world and how we are to interact with it. So guys, go have at it. And so they'll go talk in their small groups and they're looking up scripture and Google is getting blown up in that moment, you know, and, and it is all good because that's what we would do in everyday life if we came across the question, wouldn't it? And so, so they're, they're, they're dealing with that with their small group leader. And then we come back together in a large group and I say, well, okay, talk to me. What do you see? What, 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 is, what does God say about this? And ultimately, we gather together not so they can hear my opinion. And we gather together in this room this morning, so not so you can hear my opinion. You could care less about what I say. We gather together because the Lord has said something. And God's truth, it, it is the only standard that matters. It is the only standard that matters. And so when it comes to our views on sex or sanctity of life or LGBT issues or um, you know, whatever else, we cannot base it upon our opinion because the Lord has said, thus says the Lord, the Bible has said, here it is. And so we have to base what we're going off of. We have to base scripture as the lens in which we are interacting with and walking in this world. So a good example of this is this week, uh, we had a Southern Baptist Convention denominations annual meeting, and we're part of that denomination. And so in that time, there was a, a, a distinct you know, resolution voted upon and brought up forth that, that we would take the rebel flag, the, the Confederate flag, and it was, um, it was to be condemned for what it stood for and how that symbol has been used throughout the ages uh, in the last uh, hundred so whatever years, right? So many claim that um, if you're from the South, well, this is my heritage. This doesn't stand for hate or whatever else, you know, and I'm from the South. I'm from the deep South where, where I, you know, I grew up with people in that way. But let me challenge you for a second to think about uh, deeper for a moment and engage culture, all cultures, all perspectives with wisdom and the Holy Spirit. The Confederate flag, it represents the South's fight, not just for like limited government and local autonomy and things that we're fighting for, but it was also a fight that included slavery. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but slavery is far from the heart of God and of the gospel. It is far. They are far removed. They, they don't even fit in the same room. This is, is, is what scripture has said. The Lord has said, thus says I. Here, here's what's going on. And so what had happened was that there was many people from the South and, and that have kind of butchered Scripture to, to make that view of slavery fit their, their wants and their desires. Just like that happens today with LGBT issues or views on alcohol or, or whatever it is. Scripture doesn't say alcohol is a sin. It says the abuse of alcohol is a sin. Jesus turned water into wine. I mean, these are, but, and, and we know alcohol can be a stumbling block to some people. So we have to use wisdom and be guided by the Holy Spirit of when it is proper to use these things uh, and, and to, to, to um, how to take a stand on these things. Because the, the Confederate flag, it represents evil. 
That's why it was a symbol of the Jim Crow defiance of civil rights and the, and the Dixiecrat opposition of the integration uh, and, and the KKK. I mean, these are symbols. These, these, these groups use this as a symbol of, of hate. And the, a former professor of mine who's now the, the, the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, he, he said this, um, the Confederate flag and the cross cannot coexist without one setting the other on fire. And my friends, I know which one's going to get set on fire because I know which truth is, will hold the test of time. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ, right? And so I'm American. I am Southern. I am, I am from the state of Tennessee. And if you, I am so proud of where I grew up that if you say, oh yeah, Jared's from the state of Tennessee, I'll correct you and say, no, I'm not. I'm from East Tennessee, right? There's a big difference in my mind from, <laughs> between this. I was never made fun of for my accent until I moved to Middle Tennessee. And they're like, where are you from? You know, it's like, I mean, I am proud to be there, but I do not identify with those labels first. I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus Christ and Christ is the flag that I will fly. This is how we are to take our stand. This is how this church will take this stand. And we must refuse to accept anything that is contrary to the heart of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's why I'm proud that we, we have condemned the use of the rebel flag, of the Confederate flag, um, as a Southern Baptist. Now, again, let's get back to the scripture. The, Moses' continual argument, and, and God is bringing this up again and again through Moses, saying, basically, let my people go so that they may serve me, so that they may worship me. This is the concern of God in this passage in each of these plagues. Now, another clear theme that's through the plagues, that God didn't save Israel so they could, you know, kick back on the beach of the Red Sea and drink some Mai Tais, right? He didn't, that's not what he's thinking. He's wanting them to save, or excuse me, he's wanting them to serve him, to worship him. And if you're a believer, he didn't save you just so you could, you know, you know not have to worry about going to hell. That's not the purpose of that. God has saved you. He's redeemed you so that you can represent him. He has saved you so that he can send you to make disciples. He has fought for you so that you can feast with him. This is what God has done. And God says in plague five that this plague is going to be severe. Now, if you look at the progression of the plagues from plague one, the, the Nile turning into, into, into blood, all the way over to, to plague 10, you will begin to look at each of them and say, well, there is obviously some kind of level of progression of severity happening here. The plagues are getting more and more harsh and, and, and God is beginning to express and assert himself in, in, with a much heavier hand. In fact, the word severe here means heavy. Now, there's a little bit of play on words here because not only is this word, uh, this Hebrew word used to say the word severe here, it's the same word used to describe Pharaoh's heart when it's saying that it is heavy or it has been hardened. This is the same thing. So it's this play on words here. So Pharaoh basically is being told this plague will be as heavy as your heart to show you how heavy my glory will be. So God is revealing himself that he is powerful and it is just God. And again, we talked about this a minute ago, but in plague three, the magicians said, Pharaoh, wait, 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 wait. This has got to be the finger of God. We've seen nothing like this. But now the ante is being upped here. 
He's saying basically this, uh, Moses says, that the hand of God will be against Egypt. And so um, a little backstory here, a little cultural setting and why, why hand? Where is this coming from? Well, when uh, Pharaoh would, you know, when Egypt would go out into other lands, when they would, you know, conquer tribes or, or countries or, or kingdoms or whatever it may be, Pharaoh would order that in the Egyptian literature and the records that he would say that the hand of Pharaoh did those things. And Moses and God are saying, have you seen my hand? It's bigger than yours. I will dominate you. You cannot stand up to me. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am king of kings and I rule all kingdoms. And so we see this heat is just definitely being turned up on them in plague five and to the point where the Egyptian livestock die. Now, I think it's important because in my mind, I'm thinking absolutely every animal. But I, I believe based upon the way scripture is written here that in verse three, it says in the field, every livestock in the field. So therefore, those who were outside are, are, they pass. Now, in a couple of plagues later, we see livestock mentioned again. So that's why I think that it's, it seems to state that only those herds, those camels, those donkeys, those horses, whatever outside would have passed in that time. Now, when um, you just imagine like cows and horses and camels and, and, and donkeys and, and these animals, and then they die, and then the Egyptian son just bacon. I mean, and it, it would just, it would make, it would make those billions of frogs being heaped up smell like, you know, crisp crackling bacon on the morning. It smelled good compared to what just happened with this plague. Um, when I was a, a kid, uh, we, uh, my, my dad and I, we walked up in the pasture field after a, a spring storm just to check on things. How are things doing? What's this look like? And so we, we kind of turned the corner of this huge oak tree and we look up into the field. It was a very wet morning and obviously from the storm and, and our barn had fallen. And I mean, that, that was a big deal. That was one of those moments like you never forget what your dad's face looked like kind of moment. Like, oh no. Because at the end of the day, we were dependent upon that barn to, to harvest our crops. Our crops had to be harvested and they had to be processed by placing that crop in the barn. And then from there, we would work on continuing to prepare the, the crops to get them ready to be sold in the fall. And so to see that barn fallen was just, oh. But then the issue began to change pretty quickly when we realized that several of our cows had been trapped in the following of that barn. And so my dad, you know, he rushes to the truck and gets home as fast as he can and grabs his chainsaw and we get back to the barn. And I just remember, you know, my dad just cutting away at beams of wood, this old barn that was over a hundred years old, you know, just cutting away at this. And I remember one instance, there was a cow like right here and it was the backside of a cow. And you never want to be on the backs of a cow for like a lot of reasons. I, you can kind of put some of those together. Uh, but, you know, just I remember this going at it. And it, we were able to rescue most of the cows except one. And, uh, and this cow had been crushed. And so we called the neighbor and said, hey, can you come over? You've got a backhoe. We bury this cow. And, and ultimately, he couldn't make it for a couple of days. Oh, yeah, I'll be there. Well, the sun came out. And, and, and I just remember the, 
when we got to taking care of that animal, having to cut it out of the barn and, and deal with it. Let me just put it this way. I've never seen two grown men so overwhelmed by the situation and the smell. I mean, it's just horrendous. And this is the picture of what God has done and the power that he has shown over the Egyptians. And don't miss the fact here that the animals are suffering because of Pharaoh's sin. I mean, this reminds us how Adam and Eve's sin has basically affected all creation. And that's why Paul says in Romans, he writes that all creation is eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus because it was subjected, all creation was subjected to futility, right? All creation has been affected. Why do you think Adam had to deal with briars now as he farmed after his sin came into the world? Why do you think those, this is what has happened because all creation has affected animals and plants and the world as we know it, or excuse me, all sin has affected all creation, animals, plants, and the world as we know it. And so I'm a big outdoors guy. I love to be outside. I love to work outside. I love to, to fish and to hunt and to, and to camp and to hike. And I love doing anything I can do outside. And I can be greener than a leprechaun in St. Patrick's Day Parade and still not fix the issue. The issue is sin, and Christ is the answer. Christ can fix it. And so the scope of the fall of sin coming down upon this world is cosmic. It infects and affects every single detail of the known world. But the redemption of Jesus Christ is cosmic. And that's why you see the Bible ending with the world being made new. Jesus says, I am come to make a new heavens and a new earth, right? Because the old one has been affected by sin. It, it is not worthy of God to dwell in. And, and is, why do you think you get a new redeemed and restored body when you enter into heaven? Because the old one has been affected by sin and the redemption of Christ is powerful and sufficient enough to reverse all effects of sin in your life and the world. This is our God. He is that powerful. But then as we look at Pharaoh, we begin to see like, okay, he sins but his sin doesn't just affect him as an individual. It affects others, right? And so this is a great application for us, that your sin doesn't just stay with you and affect you negatively, but it affects your family and your kids. It affects your friends, your small group, your church, your coworkers, whatever it may be. Be careful and walk carefully in the Lord. Walk carefully in the Lord. So before we move on, I want to show you a couple of things, a different change in language here. In plague two, God let Pharaoh pick a time for the frogs to die. And Pharaoh said tomorrow, right? Pharaoh wishes he said sooner, I'm sure. And like, you know, <laughs> but God pro proved himself to Pharaoh in that moment. But notice God doesn't give Pharaoh the chance to pick a time anymore. God's asserting himself. He said, I don't, 
<laughs> I will do this tomorrow, Pharaoh. This will come. Notice the time that the Lord is the one who is setting the time. He is asserting his dominance with even greater force as they continue to reject him, as they continue to push him away and not uh, submit to him and his authority through repentance. Now, Another piece of this is we've been following is that each of these plagues is, is slapping a false god in the face. And nothing's different here in, uh, in plague five. The, the Egyptians worshiped bulls. They had a bull in the temple of Memphis, Memphis, Egypt, not Memphis, Tennessee, right? That they thought was an incarnation of the god Apis. And there's going to be a picture of him here on the screen. Many scholars, as they're thinking through this, it makes sense here to think, well, that's why the Israelites worshiped the golden calf and created the golden calf in the wilderness because they'd seen this God everywhere, right? This is something common that they had been part of their, their mind. And, and so when it's coming to, well, we want to worship and create a God, I think it's natural for them to probably have gone to this, in this direction. But God is smacking down the Egyptian God saying, your gods are false and they cannot stand up to me. I am the one true God. I have no rivals. I have no limits. It is just God. Let's continue on in uh, plague six and we'll read eight verses eight through 12. The Bible says, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So the sixth plague here gets more intense. We continue to talk about the level of severity growing, right? So this one's becoming more intense. Now, this could have been smallpox or could have been leprosy. We don't really know what these boils, what that entails, exactly the specifics to that, to that end. But it doesn't matter because we do begin to see that this is the first plague to directly affect and infect, if you will, man. Right? This is the first plague to physically hit them. And it was done in the same way that those Egyptian magicians would have tried to bring about a curse on someone or some village or some country that they opposed. They would go and they would take soot and ash from the fire and they would cast it in the air. And so why do you think that Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh's very eyes and the magicians and they do the same thing they would do, except they do it with greater consequence and result and they physically, literally witnessed the work and the hand of God coming down upon them because of their hard heart. Now, um, you know, the Egyptians also, they had, there was probably about, from my understanding and research, there's probably about three gods that would have been kind of, you know, um, that they would have gone after in this. You know, one, one of healing and pestilence. I mean, these three false gods would have been completely attacked. And, and, and when talking about, you know, healing and trying to, to be well, this is what they would have come after. Now, the thing is, medicine is wonderful. And, and, and we need to, you know, 
take heed to those things. But the other side of it is, it is God who makes the body work. My brothers are, are medical professionals. One's a pharmacist, and the other one is, a, a, is a medical, in medical research at Vanderbilt. And this is what they do day in and day out. And they're some of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, and, and I'm in awe of the things they talk about. I sit down with them, and I hear them talk about stuff, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know, but I sound a lot smarter. You know what I mean? I feel a lot smarter just listening to what you're saying. I have no idea what you mean in these moments. But the thing is, even my brothers, it, it's, the work they do is wonderful, and they would say, but it's God who makes the body respond. It's God who makes the body respond to the medicine. It's God who has made the blood to flow in certain ways and, and the proteins to be as they are and the DNA to be as it is. This is the hand of God. This is God who is in charge of healing. Another theme here in Scripture in this passage is that God judges the wicked. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but the plagues weren't meant to be nice. Like, it's like, hey, dads, happy Father's Day. Here's a plague. You know, I mean, I hope you didn't get a plague today. Um, you know, I hope that wasn't your Father's Day present. But they were meant to be devastating. And most people here, we, we don't want in the world, most people don't want God to be judgmental. They want to remake God and reshape God into a domesticated, tolerant God who hands out ice cream as you walk up to the gates of heaven to get your ticket punched when your heart stops beating. Right? This is the picture that many people want and long to have of God. The problem is that the Bible doesn't like, present that picture, doesn't draw that picture at all for us. Most don't want a God who judges because a judge means that then if there is someone judging, there has to be a standard of right and wrong, and we don't like that unless we're the ones creating that standard of right and wrong, Right? I mean, you think about it. I, I, I'm totally cool with it as long as I'm the one making the rules here. I mean, think about it for a second. If you're thinking about a terrorist, for instance, none of us have any issue with a terrorist being judged. People would say, well, well Osama bin Laden, and, or hell is too good for Osama bin Laden and for the Paris bombers and for the Brussels bombers. I mean, they deserve this. We don't want God to be judgmental, but you want to you run a, a ref? out of town because they made your team lose the game or because tomorrow morning on your commute downtown Nashville, bless your heart, I can't believe, oh, I could not do that. You want to run Miss Daisy off the road? You know, people don't want an absolute standard until someone offends them, until someone, you know, punches them in the face and causes, you know, a, a hurt to them. We don't want a God to be judgmental, but we're going to picket a woman to be burned at the stake because her child wandered into a gorilla cage. You know, we don't want a God to be just, but we're going to buy T-shirts that support and promote social justice. The point is, everybody wants justice. We just don't want God to be just. Everybody judges people. We just, you know, don't want God to be judgmental. God is, and we're not. God is God, we're not, which means that he pleases to do what he wants, and he he makes that happen. He judges us. We don't judge him. His standard is right and his judgment is just and he is a just God. Now, another clear theme that God not only judges, but he clearly, based upon this passage, discriminates between Israel and Egypt. There's a clear distinction going on. 
Um, you, you remember God discriminates between Israel and Egypt and the, uh, and, the, and the plague of the flies we talked about last week. I'm gonna send flies to Egypt, but not the land of Goshen where, where the Israelites dwelled since the time of Joseph in the end of Genesis. I'm gonna send my flies here, but not here. And then in verse nine, excuse me, verse one of chapter nine here, we read, thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, the God of the Hebrews. It doesn't say the God of the, of, of the Hebrews and the Egyptians. It says the God of the Hebrews. So in plague five, he discriminates between the Egyptian and the Hebrew livestock, causing the, the a major, major part of the Egyptian economy to be destroyed and the status of that to plummet and crash to the ground while the Hebrew it, it just went through the roof. Their livestock was great. Nothing had been harmed. They sent a witness out to view that very thing. And just as people don't like a God who judges, people also don't like a God who discriminates. We want a God who treats everyone the same. The problem is, um, that's ridiculous. We don't even do that, right? A great example. If you want to have a hard time with your kids, treat every kid that you have the exact same. We think, well, why is that bad? Well, think about it for a second. All your kids are different. All my kids are different. All the kids sitting in this church, they're different. They respond to different things, right? So there's no way that we can treat them the same. I learned this one time. I had a, a very um, difficult kid that I couldn't get to respond to anything. And so if you would verbally reprimand him, not in a harsh way, but in a, hey, please stop doing that, just in a very firm way, the kid would lock up on me. Or, or my favorite, he would just do completely opposite of what I just said, right? You know, this is, this is what we know. And, <laughs> but my son, Carter, if I said, Carter, stop doing that. Yes, sir. Sorry, dad. You know, he is our rule follower to a T for the most part. He's going to completely fulfill that just with a simple response from me. But that kid I was telling you about, if I would just go and I would put my arm around him, I would pull him in tight and I would say, hey, go do that for me right now. He's gone. Kids respond in different ways because they're different, right? Now, I treated them all fair. I treated them all fair. I held them all to the same standard. But um, they're not the same, right? God, um, the Bible's clear that God will treat sin fairly and righteously. He will do that. This is what God must do. If he is just, he must treat sin fairly and righteously, which means he treats everybody justly. Now, here's how that plays out. That sin either gets uh, treated justly on the cross of Jesus Christ for Christians, and for the non-believer, it gets treated justly in punishment in hell, the experience of God's wrath in hell. And for some, there will be feasting with the Lord, and for some, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and for some, there will be swimming in a pool of grace and for others burning in the lake of fire. And this has to capture us, church. This has got to capture us. We have got to understand this. It's a hip and a buzz word right now, the word inclusion. You guys have heard it going on, but without exclusion, you have nothing to include people in. You ever thought about that? Like, well, not everybody in my school was a part of my football team. Right? Not everybody in my school was a part of my basketball team. 
Not everybody in this community is a part of this church. Not everybody in your friends are, or not everybody in the world is a, is a group, uh, is part of the group of your friends. Not everybody is a part of that political group. Inclusive people are very exclusive to those who don't meet their standards. And God is God, even when we don't completely like or understand what he does. Many scale God down to, to make him you know, look like what they think he should be. Well, surely God isn't responsible for hitting this city and not that city, or for someone who loves Jesus and dies young, but for that uh, atheist who lives to be 100 and, and rakes in millions and millions of dollars, we don't wanna lay those things on God. But if God is omnipotent and sovereign and the Bible is clear that he discriminates to bring about his will here. In the book of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the girl Jill is approaching the only stream in Narnia and she is thirsty, she wants a drink, but Aslan, the great lion, is guarding the stream. And so she is scared and she is timid and she asks Aslan, do you, do you eat little girls? And, and he says, well, I've consumed kingdoms, I've consumed peoples and I've consumed worlds. And she keeps asking questions, trying to figure out if she's safe. But, but Aslan won't give her any comfort. And finally she says to Aslan, well, I'll go find another stream. And Aslan responds, little girl, there is no other stream. There is no other God. It's just God. You can try to make God into a God who's safer and and who's tamer and more domesticated and manageable, but there is no other God. There is only one true God, the God of the Bible, and he judges and he discriminates, but he is a good God. I want our band to come out here. Don't misunderstand here that, you know, everything for the Christian is going to be, you know, drinks with umbrellas, you know, uh, on the beach for the rest of your life. I mean, wouldn't that be great if that was the case and we all lived in our own little Christian Goshen where the, the plagues hit the rest of the world, but not us. But that's not the case. I mean, we look at the life of Joseph who was sold into slavery, but in that brought about the will of the Lord and the purposes of the Lord to rescue a people, Israel, from starvation and famine by becoming a slave and, and God placed him second in command of all of Egypt in which all of Israel moved and then dwelt in the land of Goshen where they were in this time of the Exodus. Or Paul who you know, miraculously was saved by Jesus Christ on the road and, and, and was then taken to and used by God to plant churches all throughout the Middle East and Turkey and, and all throughout in those areas and then he was arrested, a Roman citizen arrested and then taken to Rome to be placed in a Roman jail cell where then he would live out his days encouraging, edifying, writing, correcting the churches that God had used him to plant and bringing about the Lord's will in those days. Or Jesus himself, look at our own savior, the man who took our sins upon his shoulders and the wrath of God completely fell upon him, the wrath that we so deserved. That doesn't always look like a, an incredible experience, but the beauty that we have is the hope that all creation will be redeemed and a new heavens and a new earth are coming. Right? This is the hope that we have in Christ. The point is ultimately that those who know Jesus will feast 
with the best wine imaginable, and those who, who don't will, will burn with the hottest fire conceivable. I mean, this is this weighty. This is weighty. To those who know him, he'll say, come into my Father's joy. And for those who don't, he will say, depart from me. I, I never knew you. I mean, this is how God represents himself. And if you don't want a God who judges or makes distinctions on those who love and who hate him or those who believe or don't believe or those who follow Jesus and don't follow Jesus, if you don't want a God like that, then you're going to have to go make him up because that is not the God of the Bible. But he is good. This is our God, and so let us be burdened by this reality, and let us go with the gospel in hand and live sent no matter where he has placed us to share with people the picture of God and how he has revealed himself to us. Let us do that, for the glory of God is at stake in the lives of many. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance and the opportunity to, to see you, to see you and to be burdened by the reality of what it means. Um, they, um, Father, for those in this room who, who have never thought about those things, believed those things, we pray that the Holy Spirit would work. We pray that you would uh, provide a more clear picture of who you are to all in this room. And Father, help us respond to your will. God, our prayer is that, that your will would be done on earth in our lives as it will be done in heaven one day. God, we know you have called us to serve you, to worship you as you called the Israelites. So Father, no matter what that means for me or um, each of these people in this room sitting in these spots. God, that you would keep our hearts from being hardened and that you would help us to pursue you. Save us, God, because we cannot save ourselves because our sin and our penalty and our debt is too great. Father, thank you for the chance to be here and to hear you and see you. In Jesus' name.